The greatest of all God's promises is his promise of the Holy Spirit in you. Yet I've found there are at least five lies about the Holy Spirit that prevent many Christians from experiencing his full power in their lives. But that won't be you, not after this. This is the Shut Up Devil Show. I am Kyle Winkler, helping you shut down the lies and struggles that keep you from thriving in God's design for your life. And we're here to do it every single week with a live online audience. And I'd love for you to join us live sometime. We're right here on Thursdays at kylewinkler.org slash live, 8 p.m. Central. Okay, at the time of this recording, we are just a few days beyond what's known as Pentecost. Pentecost is the church holiday which celebrates the original Pentecost that happened 50 days after Resurrection Sunday, and 10 days after Jesus' ascension into heaven. And that's where I want to start. I want to start at the ascension. So let's look at Acts 1, right here. Jesus' disciples are gathered around him, and they ask him some questions about the future. Verse 8, he replies to their questions. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This verse is key here. And we're going to keep coming back to a few specific words in it. But immediately after Jesus says this, he ascends into heaven. Like I said, this happened on the 40th day after his resurrection. Ten days later, on day 50, the promised Holy Spirit descended on about 120 Jewish believers in an upper room in Jerusalem. This is the event of Pentecost. Pentecost means 50. That's why it's called that. Some might say it's the beginning of the church. It was certainly the beginning of something huge, which is really the story throughout the book of Acts. By the end of Acts, we get a clue about the future of the Holy Spirit for us today. And so we're going to get into all of this here. But as I said in the introduction, the Holy Spirit is God's greatest promise. He's the culmination of years of prophecy. He's one of the main things that separates Christians from every other religion. I might say the main thing, that he indwells Christians, that we are people of the Spirit. No other religion can say that. We can. But I dare to say that many today are missing out on the power of the Holy Spirit, not because the power is gone, but because some lies have got in the way. And I've counted five big ones. The first lie is that the Holy Spirit is strange. You know, this notion that the Holy Spirit is strange or weird or confusing is something fairly modern, and it's caused entire denominations and groups of people to be incredibly uneducated about the Spirit to limit his present-day ministry, or even dismiss it altogether. At least, in principle, some have changed the Trinity to the Father, Son, and Holy Bible. 
But the Holy Bible, as great as it is, was not canonized into the collection of books that we have today until about 350 years after the first gospel was written. So for some three centuries, Christians had a few letters, yes, that were passed around, but they were ultimately guided by the Holy Spirit who was promised by Jesus and poured out on Pentecost. And on that day of Pentecost, while yes, the Bible says they were surprised and perplexed by tongues of fire and people speaking in other languages, they didn't think of the Spirit as strange or some mysterious presence of God that they couldn't grasp. No. The presence of the Spirit was taught as the expected outcome of longtime prophecy. Peter said it's what was supposed to happen. Look at Acts 2.16. Peter, he says, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. God says, I will pour out my Spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. This was the beginning of a sermon that Peter preached that resulted in more than 3,000 people believing in Jesus in a single day. The beginning of the church. To them, the Holy Spirit wasn't strange. He was expected, as I said. And what he did and would do was expected too. Now, remember on the day of Pentecost. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere, ultimately. Well, they understood the Spirit's power was to make them witnesses, to spread the gospel. And that, by the way, was the first demonstration of the Spirit's power to help them spread the gospel. You see, in the crowd of people at Pentecost were Jews from different nations who spoke different languages. They were all there for a Jewish feast when the Holy Spirit came. And in an instant, they heard each other speaking in their own languages. And here's the key. They didn't hear the Holy Spirit saying, turn or burn. They didn't hear accusations. They didn't hear stop or else. In Acts 2.11, it says, we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things that God has done. They heard about the goodness of God. The Holy Spirit spoke through them about his kindness. This is what led Peter to preach how he preached. In verse 38, he said, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent is the Greek word metanoia, which means change your mind. Specifically, change your mind about who God is and what he did. More specifically, Peter said, Believe that God is good and that he sent Jesus as the final sacrifice for your sins. Peter was the first public witness, filled with the Holy Spirit. And from his message, 3,000 more people believed were filled with the Holy Spirit and became witnesses to the goodness of God. So this brings me to the second lie about the Holy Spirit, which is that he convicts us of our sins. You know, I think that most people think that's the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit. I grew up thinking that. I thought he was kind of like the great sin police waiting for me to break the law, then punishing me into submission 
so that I might not do it again. That kind of uh, skewed view of the Spirit is a really good way to want to have nothing to do with Him, I think. And it might be how some in the church have come to describe the Spirit today, but it's not how the apostles understood Him or taught Him. They knew the Spirit as Jesus described Him on at least two occasions. The first occasion had to do with how the Spirit relates to unbelievers. Look at John chapter 16, verse 8. And he said, when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. Now, some people will hear that and they might say, see, he convicts people of sin. But note that Jesus said sin, not sins. That's important. But it's also important not to stop right there because Jesus says what the sin is. In verse 9, he says the world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. You see, unbelief is what the Holy Spirit convicts unbelievers about. He doesn't approach them saying, I see you're smoking a cigarette. You better stop that or you'll be smoking forever. He doesn't say, lay off the booze or you're going to burn. No, he shows them Jesus and what he did. He, in some way, demonstrates God's goodness. He says, let me change your mind about God. Maybe religion and the world have painted one picture, but this is who he is. And I'm telling you, you get that? You understand God's goodness and God's love and what Jesus did to die for your sins? You get that, and the other stuff works itself out in time. That's what the Spirit's concerned with. Showing you Jesus. And this is partly why Jesus called him the Advocate. Not because he advocates for perfection, but the word advocate is the Greek word parakletos, which is a word that basically meant defense attorney in their day. The Holy Spirit's on your side. And for Christians, he's on your side to show your innocence, not to prove your failures. And this is, as I said, important to remember when it comes to the Spirit's role for Christians. In our lives, most of us who are watching here or listening. And so this brings me to the second occasion when Jesus described the Spirit. Turn to John 14, verse 26. But when the Father sends the Advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. Here again, he uses Advocate. And as Jesus' representative, he does it like Jesus did. Jesus always defended strugglers and his followers in a loving way. And he always reminded them the truth of the Father, that he is good, merciful, full of unfailing love. I teach more about all of that in a message I've titled, The Real Role of the Holy Spirit. But it's the accuser who reminds people of sin, not the advocate. Don't mix up the roles of the devil versus the Holy Spirit. Don't do that. The accuser tells you of sin. The advocate tells you of righteousness. Like I said, an advocate doesn't bring up your failures. But secondly, he doesn't have to. Because Jesus died to forgive sin once and for all. He died so that our sins aren't held against us. 
So there's no reason to bring it up. But third, the power of the Christian life, the power to be a witness, comes from the joy of what salvation did. That's what's going to motivate you. It doesn't come, for sure, from any burden that salvation requires. So you need to know the Holy Spirit will never say, stop this or else. What he will say is, it is finished. God loves you. You are complete. You are forgiven. He'll remind you about the wonderful things that God has done so that you naturally want to tell others. He'll empower you with his goodness. And his goodness is the only kind of message with any power to help an unbeliever believe anyway. You can't scare people into salvation. They got to know the good God that they're coming into relationship with. So this brings me to the third lie about the Holy Spirit. And that's that the Holy Spirit helps us live up to God's expectations. Now, what's so wrong about this? Well, it's the word expectations. That's a word basically for laws that people must fulfill in order to receive or be something. You know, I find that we'll hopefully preach unconditional love to unbelievers. We'll say, come as you are. Some don't, but I think most people do. They'll say, come as you are. But then the moment they get that unbeliever to bow their head and repeat some sinner's prayer, then they slap them on the back with a thousand and one laws and say, but don't be burdened, brother or sister. The Holy Spirit is with you now to help you live up to them. And the person leaves giving it their best shot until, I don't know, five, 10, maybe 30 years or more down the road, I get an email or a DM or a phone call from someone worried about their faith because they haven't lived up to everything they thought they should. And so they wonder if they ever had the Holy Spirit in the first place, or they fear maybe the Holy Spirit changed his mind about them somewhere along the way. So I simply ask them, do you believe in Jesus? Like, do you believe that Jesus did everything necessary to forgive your sins and make you right with God? And of course, these people say yes. And then I say, then the Holy Spirit did his job to help you meet God's expectations. Because faith in Jesus is what the Holy Spirit initially convinces you of and helps to keep you convinced of. In 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, the Apostle Paul says that God, the Holy Spirit, has enabled us to be ministers of his new covenant. And he goes on to say that this covenant is not of written laws, but is of spirit. Now, Paul there is talking about the 613 laws of Moses, which began with the Ten Commandments. But throughout his letters, he also goes after some of the Greek and Roman self-help kind of laws, too. So it doesn't matter whether it's a Jewish law or some contemporary means of self-discipline, any have to or must do is a law which Paul in his very next breath said ends in death. In 1 Corinthians 15.56, he says law gives sin its power. So I'm telling you, trying to live up to any expectation besides simple faith in Jesus will always result in failure or hypocrisy. Because that's what law was made to do. God intended law only to expose human weakness so that people see their need for Jesus. 
The Holy Spirit mentors you. Yes, he will suggest course correction. Yes. He knows both you in the future, so he knows how to steer you. But he's not going to help you strive to achieve anything from God. Not forgiveness, not blessing, not favor. Instead, as your advocate, he will remind you that you already have it because of Jesus. He'll help you walk in what you already have because of Jesus. The fourth lie about the Holy Spirit is kind of built on the last one. It's that holy living keeps the Holy Spirit close. Now, before I get into this one, let me say this up front. I'm not dismissing holy living. But a lot of us have been warned all of our lives that sin separates you from God. Got to get all the sin out. So we don't know where we stand today because, well, we still sin at times. Well, yes, sin did separate you relationally. But with your faith in Jesus, you've been cleansed and you've been reconciled. Because of the cross, your sin is forgiven and no longer held against you. So God doesn't threaten that you better shape up or I'll ship out. Instead, he promises that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. And that's an Old Testament promise, by the way. He promises wayward and whining people that he'd go before them, behind them, and be beside them. And that remained true amid their rebellion. It remained true despite the presence of sin in their lives. Now, sometimes they interpreted bad things that happened to them as the result of God leaving them. That wrong interpretation is what caused the psalmist to say, the fool says in their heart, there is no God. A lot of people think that's a verse about atheism. It wasn't a verse about atheism. There was no atheism in those days. It was about their belief that bad things happened because God left them. So the psalmist was saying, it's foolish to believe that God will leave you. He's not going to leave you. Not when he's promised to always be with you. God doesn't break his promises. But like I said, that was an Old Testament promise before the cross. We live on the other side of the cross in which Jesus promised that his Holy Spirit would come to live inside each believer. We've got it better. Yes, he's before us. He's behind us. He's beside us like he was with Israel back then. But now we live with the reality that he's also inside of us, not because of performance, but because of faith in Jesus, because we are made new in Christ. Now, you might not always feel that close to him. I heard someone say recently, I don't always feel that close to my liver. But that doesn't mean it isn't in me and helping me. Feelings are fickle. They're going to come and go. They're going to change with the weather and the wind. They're influenced by many things. But I've found that the feeling of whether you're close to God or the feeling that you're not close to God is ultimately based on guilt. If the enemy can make you feel like you aren't forgiven, then he'll make you believe that God is mad and might leave you for a while, if not forever, because of it. It's guilt. But that's a lie. The truth is that God is not mad at you. He will never be mad at you. As a Christian, he's with you and inside of you. He can't get any closer and he's not going any further. I explore much more about that in my message, The Key to Intimacy. But some ask, but can't you grieve the Holy Spirit? 
That's from Ephesians 4.30. It says, and do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Other versions say grieve. That's the traditional word there. But that word, I think, tends to sound harsher than what the Apostle Paul intended to say. So people interpret the Holy Spirit grieving as the Holy Spirit leaving based upon their living. So bring sorrow is more accurate. And yes, obviously Paul's talking about behaviors here. The whole context is talking about words and it's talking about your actions. So it's, of course, talking about behaviors. But context is still key here because the very next verse says, Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. So he says, don't bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live, but remember, you're guaranteed to be saved. So bringing sorrow to the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with your salvation. It doesn't mean that you can cause the Spirit to leave you. What it means is that the Holy Spirit can be sad or distressed for you because of how something might hurt you. Just like you have a child who does something that you can see is not going to benefit them, and you might be sad for them because you know how it's going to work out. It's the same thing. That's what this is speaking about. So another way to say it is that he's not sad about you, but he can be sad for you, only because he deeply cares about you. But again, grieving isn't leaving. More real than what you feel is the guarantee that you are God's child, the promise that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and the promise that the Spirit is with you. Okay. This brings us to the fifth lie about the Holy Spirit. It's that the Holy Spirit is only with certain people. There are two parts to this. One has to do again with unbelievers and the other has to do with believers. First, recall what Peter preached at Pentecost. He said that the Pentecost experience was the fulfillment of the prophecy that God would pour out his spirit on all flesh, all people. This means that the Holy Spirit is working on and moving around everybody. As we said, as Jesus said, to bring them to belief in Christ, to convict them of unbelief, to get them to see God's goodness. But on and around all people doesn't mean in all people. The Holy Spirit only lives inside of believers. But that's all believers. And that's really the main point of the book of Acts. It was written to chronicle the Holy Spirit being received by very different kinds of believers in ways that often shock the Jewish people. Now, I don't have time to go into all the details of every story, but here's the gist. The first experience of people receiving the Holy Spirit is what we've already covered on Jewish people at Pentecost in Acts 2. 
The second experience is with Samaritans in Acts 9. Now, this was shocking because the Jews never liked Samaritans. They thought they were impure and had bad doctrine. Yet Samaritans received the Holy Spirit the same as the Jews. Something happens in Acts chapter 10, which really prepares for the rest of history. Peter receives a vision that says, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. So there's a longer story around this that you should read for yourself. But in Acts 10.28, Peter interprets what it meant. He shares his interpretation. He says, God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. Anyone. What this meant is that anyone who chose to believe was worthy of receiving the Holy Spirit, Jew or Gentile. And that's what happened. Later in Acts 10, Gentiles received the Holy Spirit. And then a little later, the Ephesians received the Holy Spirit in Acts 19. So my point here is, be careful about creating some kind of litmus test to who can receive the Holy Spirit and who can't. God is pursuing everyone without discrimination. The Jews were shocked that the impure Samaritans with bad doctrine could receive him. They were even more shocked that the secular, idol-worshipping Gentiles could believe and receive him. And I suggest that some of us might be shocked at who could believe and receive the Holy Spirit in our culture too. Don't count anyone out. That's what it's saying. I also suggest that's what Luke was saying. Luke is the author of the book of Acts. I think that's what he was saying by the way he finished the book. This is a little fun fact for you, some food for thought at least. Follow me here. Acts begins with Jesus telling his disciples that the Holy Spirit will empower them to be witnesses to tell his good news in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Through the book, as we saw, Luke describes how that happened in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and a little beyond, into Gentile territory. But the book of Acts ends with Paul imprisoned in Rome, obviously short of the ends of the earth. Luke knew the rest of the story. He knew what happened to Paul. So why didn't he include it? Well, some scholars believe it has to do with a literary technique that writers used in those days, whereby they left off the ending of a book so that readers would continue the story in their own lives. So I suggest to you that Luke wrote Acts in a strategic way to say, you continue the story. Take Jesus's commission for yourself. As a Christian, the Holy Spirit is in you, encouraging and empowering you to tell of God's goodness, to be that witness of what he's done. And to do it, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have some special pedigree. 
You don't have to be some personality. You just have to be you. And God will be God. And that's it. You be you. God will be God. And the faith and the church rolls on. Okay. You know, in the word paralyze is the word lies. That's what lies do. They paralyze you. Well, I trust that exposing these lies about the Holy Spirit will unparalyze you to experience the true power and purpose of the Holy Spirit in your life. There are more lies, though, that might be holding you back. There were for me. That's why I wrote my book, Shut Up Devil, Silencing the Ten Lies Behind Every Battle You Face. In this book, I reveal the sneaky way the enemy gets into your mind. The ten most dangerous lies he runs through your mind, and then I show you how to shut him up and shut him down. This book has been featured on TV and radio and many podcasts. And that's because people are experiencing real freedom from the truths that it reveals. Well, you can experience the same freedom for yourself. Shut Up Devil is available in paperback, ebook, or audiobook wherever books are sold, or I'll send you a signed copy. If you order it on my website at kylewinkler.org slash shutupdevil. That's kylewinkler.org slash shutupdevil. Okay, that does it for the Shut Up Devil Show. Remember, God is good and he is for you, and we're here for you too. Every week on my website at kylewinkler.org, we're here on our podcast, and we're here on social media. Don't forget, wherever you're watching or listening, to tap that subscribe or follow button so that you never miss a show. I'll see you next time.